0: Entirely self indulgent of me to mention the famous Welsh Grand Slam victory in Cardiff yesterday. <laughs> so I'm not going to do that. Okay. I'm going to let Scripture speak first. Excuse me while I turn around. That's so small I can't read it. All Scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's from 2 Timothy 3, For the people listening to the recording. Do we believe that? Do we believe that this is the inspired word of God? Think about the implications of that, of believing that. We believe this is the inspired word of God. Scripture tells us it's God-breathed. That means that every piece of Scripture is there for a purpose. God has intended it to be there, and it has a message for us, an important message. And that means all the 66 books in scripture and every part of every book. The problem is that sometimes when we look at, we're reading through scriptures, when we come across some scriptures, it's easy for us to see why God intended that scripture to be there. It's easy to see the message and its relevance for us, what it's trying to say. And here's a good example here. The Lord's Prayer must become known as the Lord's Prayer from Luke 11. I won't read it. It's easy to see why that is there. This is Jesus responding to a question by his disciples, well, how do we pray? This is Jesus teaching his disciples to pray. It's Jesus showing them the form or the format, the, the way that you should address God, the fact that you, sh- you can ask him for things. And it's easy to understand why God intended that that scripture get in the canon because Jesus can give us the same teaching it teaches us important things. Every saint that's come since the time of the disciples, it teaches us important things about the nature of God and His character—that He's not an impersonal force, that He cares about our needs, and that we can ask Him to address His needs, to address our needs. But also that He's holy, and He needs to be venerated and revered. But there are some other scriptures that we read where it really is not easy to see the, the message that's contained therein. And it's easy to think that this scripture doesn't contain a message or it doesn't contain a message that's relevant for me. And what we do sometimes... Have I gone too far? Yeah. What we do sometimes is we pass over those scriptures. We just go, well, there doesn't seem to be anything in that. Let's move on and get into the bits that are more interesting and more relevant. When we come across these scriptures, what we should do is work at them, to put in the effort to try and understand them. And that can involve talking to someone that's more learned than you, looking at commentaries, and most importantly, praying that the Holy Spirit, one of whose roles is teaching, will open up those scriptures so that we, we can understand them. But What we tend to do is we do a quick cost-benefit analysis in our heads. I have to teach this to my students sometimes. Cost-benefit analysis, and we say is what I would get out of that scripture really worth the effort of understanding it? And we say, I don't think there's going to be anything that is shattering in there, so it's really not worth me putting in the effort, so I'm going to move on. And we sometimes make some assumptions about different parts of scripture that help us to justify just pushing on and ignoring them. And sometimes we think that the scripture is not relevant to us in our time that the scripture was given to people who were dealing with issues that we don't deal with in our society. Sometimes we think that there's, a scripture is just uh, too difficult to understand that you're never going to get a clear message out of it. Sometimes we think that scripture is not designed to be understood. Why on earth we would think that? I don't know. But sometimes I think we do. Even subconsciously we do. Sometimes we look at scriptures and we say, well, this is just historical narrative. This is just a you know, minor historical interest for the history students of scripture is relevant for them but not for us. We don't need to bother with that. And even we think that some scriptures are there because they're padding material that God has allowed the writers of scripture to put these things in because they're innocuous and they don't do any harm. But when we do that, we deprive ourselves of valuable information, usually valuable information about God, about his nature, his character, his motives, his desires for us, the, the nature of our relationship for us, his redeeming work for us. We lose this sort of information and our understanding of God and possibly our faith also is impoverished as a result. And certain types of scripture are more prone to this dismissal us than others. And one of the things that we sometimes do this with is prophecy. And that's going to be my focus today. Not every prophecy is dismissed in this way, but some are. Here's an example. Here's an example of a prophecy that we might look at and say, well, this just isn't relevant for us today. I'll read it very quickly. Hear the word of the Lord, O King of Judah, you who sit on David's throne. This is what the Lord says. Do what is right and just. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who's been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the alien, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. For if you are careful to carry out these commands, then the king who sits on David's throne will come through the gates of of his palace, riding in chariots and on horses, accompanied by all their officials and all the people. But if you do not obey these commands, declares the Lord, I swear by myself that this palace will become a ruin. We look at that scripture and we say, well, what is the relevance of that to us? It tells us a little bit about the wrong behavior that was going on in that society at the time. But what's the relevance for us? We can't find any analogs in our society, can we? We don't live in a society like that. We don't live in a society where the government actually persecutes and harms foreigners. We don't live in a society where the government and our religious leaders condone burning our child to worship the god Moloch. We don't live in a society which in any way condones dispossessing and robbing orphans and widows. So what possible relevance can a prophecy like that have for us today? Now, here's an issue. If prophecy, a lot of prophecy, has no relevance to us today, why is there so much of it in Scripture? Depending upon how you interpret what prophecy is, it's been estimated that between one quarter and one third of all Scripture is prophecy. Why did God put so much of it into the canon of Scripture? if it is of only minor historical interest or has very little relevance for us today. If all Scripture is God-breathed, if all Scripture is in there for a purpose, if all Scripture has a message for us, and that's why God put it in there, then there must be a message in prophecy, which we're not seeing, that goes beyond the specific events that are being talked about. What is this message that prophecy, as a class of literature, as a class of scripture, has for us that tells us? What is it trying to say to us? That's what I want to try and hone in on today and try to understand. So, the thing that characterizes prophecy is its sheer diversity. It is given in different ways to different people at different times in different places over thousands of years. Men and women, rich and poor, noble and commoners, educated and uneducated, dealing with all sorts of different issues in different types of culture, sometimes in the life of the nation Israel, sometimes in the life of the gentle nations around. And it's easy to get overwhelmed by that and say, well, there seems to be no common threads in there. It's just a big morass. So the first thing we can do is try and provide some order and structure. We can start classifying those different types of scripture into classes to make it more easy, easy to understand. And there are four different types of scripture that I want to identify. There are four ways in which we can classify them. There are actually more, but these are the key ones. And they are temporal direction. I'll explain what these are just very briefly, what these things mean. Method of communication. Conditionality and literal or figurative, figurative language. In prophecy, God talks to groups, people, the nation, about things that are in the future, things that are in the present, and things that are in the past. When God is talking about or predicting events in the future, that is known as a foretelling prophecy. But when God is talking about events in the present, concurrent, or events in the past, that is known as a foretelling prophecy. Sometimes the prophecies contain both of those elements. And there's an example from the book of Amos of one of those prophecies that contain both elements. For three sins of Moab, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath because he burned as if to lime the bones of Edom's king. That's the fourth telling component. The Lord talking about something that Edom has done in the past. Next comes the foretelling element. I will send fire upon Moab that will consume the fortresses of Kirioth. Those must be his centers of power and defense. So God is saying, in response to what they've done in the past, this is what I'm going to do in the future. He's foretelling events. By far, the most dominant type of prophecy are the foretelling prophecies where God is predicting events that are going to happen in the future. So that is going to be my focus. And on that basis, we can define what prophecy is as a divinely inspired prediction of the future. Method of communication. When God gives a prophecy, when he speaks a message, he can do it using verbal language or he can use a non-verbal form of communication. Verbal forms of communication occur in different ways. God can talk to a person face-to-face like he did with Moses. Moses. He can use a disembodied voice a voice like he did to Moses and Daniel. He can talk through another individual as a, through an angel who conveys the message like the angel Gabriel did to Zechariah and also to Mary. He can use a human being as a messenger, as an intermediary to pass on a verbal message. That's by far the most common way that he does it. And this can be done, this verbal communication, both when the hearer or hearers, are wide awake and he, um, conscious, or whether they're asleep or having some kind of vision. The nonverbal forms of prophecy, using pictures and images, they tend to be while people are having visions or dreams. I'm going to skip that. We're running out of time. Okay. Conditional and unconditional prophecies. Two different types. A, an unconditional prophecy is when God is talking about an event that is guaranteed to occur. It is a fixed event. He's talking essentially about future facts. Nothing that people do can alter what's going to happen. Here's an example of one of those prophecies. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. This is Jesus saying that after that point in time, he's going to go to heaven, he's going to prepare a place so that he can come back and he can take his saints, his church, to go and be with him. That is not conditional on anything that the saints do. He's just going to do that. The second type of prophecy is the conditional prophecy, where what God does in the future or what events transpire is dependent on the way people behave. Here's an example. If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will send rain in its season and the land will yield its crops. And the trees of the field, their fruit much from Leviticus. This is from a body of prophecy known as the blessings and curses. In the law, in the book of Leviticus and in the Pentateuch, you mainly get the conditional prophecies. If you do this, then this will happen. If you do ever, something else will happen. In books like Revelation, you mainly get the unconditional prophecies where God is saying, regardless of what you do, this is what I'm going to do in the future. Knowing that has helped us us understand some of the things I'm going to say later. Finally, prophecies can use both literal and figurative language. This prophecy on the slide, which comes from the book of Leviticus, chapter 26, is an example of a prophecy which can be understood literally. If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will send rain in its season and the land will yield its crops and the trees of the field their fruit. This uh, prophecy can be understood in literal terms because it makes sense if you transfer it into the real world. If you transfer that message literally into the real world, it still makes sense. If you try, try to transfer a message in prophecy literally into the real world and it, and it becomes an absurdity, it just cannot happen, then that is the clue that you need to interpret that scripture as allegory. It's figurative language. And here's an example of a prophecy that you, you need to do that with. From Isaiah chapter 40. In the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness the highway for our God. Now, the New Testament has shed some light on that, so we know that that prophecy foretells the coming of John the Baptist, whose preaching prepares the way for the Lord. What it isn't saying is that John the Baptist carries out civil engineering in the desert of Judea. That's what the literal interpretation would mean, and that's an absurdity. So that means that this is figurative language that what John is actually doing is he's preparing the minds of the people of Israel to receive the message that the Lord Jesus is going to bring. And as I said, we know that's true because in the New Testament, those writers told us that that is exactly what John the Baptist did. In fact, Jesus himself told us that that was John's purpose. There are many disputes over prophecy, and I think this is one of the reasons why people avoid it, and it isn't often or often enough taught in churches there is a lot of wrangling and dispute over the interpretation of prophecies, particularly the end times prophecies. And the reason for those differences of opinion are due to differences in whether you use literal or figurative interpretations of those prophecies. And it kind of suggests that some of those prophecies are really difficult to understand. You're never going to be able to get to the bottom of them. But if you use a few simple rules, you can usually decide whether you need to interpret a prophecy as figurative language or literal literal truth. Does another scripture offer an interpretation that shows you whether you interpret this literally or in figurative terms? Usually in the New Testament, some of the prophecies of the Old Testament are interpreted for us. Does a literal interpretation lead to an absurdity? I've already mentioned what that is. And have the foretold events already come to pass? Because if they have, if you can see evidence they've come to pass, then you know that a literal or a figurative interpretation is required. Armed with those three questions and the answers to them, you can usually decide whether to interpret a a prophecy, even end times prophecies, literally or in figurative terms. Right, before we go on to look at the message or the messages that come out of prophecy as a class of scripture we need to look at some of the criterion for determining what a prophecy is, whether something is a true prophecy or not. There are certain rules. A prophecy must precede the events that are foretold by a significant margin of time. You, you can't give a prophecy so close to the events that you can actually have, make an educated guess based on the trends you're seeing around you. You can't watch the weather reports on the Met Office website and then come and prophesy what the weather is going to be like tomorrow. That isn't true prophecy. True prophecies have specific detail. They don't deal in vague ambiguities. The people who deal in vague ambiguities are astrologers and fortune tellers. They give vague messages that the gullible people will interpret in terms of their own specific Characteristics, their own specific events. But true prophecy deals in specific detail. The prophecies about future events must also be completely accurate, and any prophet giving prophecies has to be accurate 100% of the time. Why? Because a true prophecy comes from God, and He doesn't make mistakes. God has given us a test of whether something is true prophecy or not, based on exactly these rules. When he says in the book of Deuteronomy 19, you may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not come true, that is the message that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. There are many modern prophets in the church We've come out with predictions for future events that have not come true. In fact, very seldom do they ever come true. We need to take that piece of Scripture to heart, those people have spoken presumptuously. Does the prophecy that we find in Scripture meet those strict criteria? Does it pass those tests? And remember that there are hundreds of prophecies in Scripture. Up to a third of the entire canon is prophecy. Does it meet those tests? Yes, it does, in every single case. Here's an example. Genesis 15. Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated 400 years. But I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. This was God talking to Abraham face-to-face, using verbal communication again, that particular form of prophecy. He's talking about events that will happen after Abraham's life. We know that because he says, you'll be dead by the time this happens. It talks about the, that to his descendants going down into Egypt and becoming enslaved, being there 400 years, then coming out with great possessions. Did that happen? Exactly as foretold, centuries before the events took place. Here's another example. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt. That's a prophecy in the book of Jeremiah. Talking about the Babylonians conquering Israel and taking the whole population, or a large part of it, into slavery in Babylon and them living there and remaining there 70 years. That's specific detail. And that is exactly the length of the time that they remained there. And then they came back. Prophecy even told us in advance, hundreds of years in advance, the name of the king who would do that. King Cyrus. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his way straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free but not for a price or reward, says the Lord. There are hundreds and hundreds of scriptures like that, hundreds of prophecies. And don't forget all those prophecies about the Messiah. The coming of Jesus was foretold sometimes thousands of years before it happened, where he would be born, what his lineage would be, how he would grow up, what his nature and character would be, what his work would be, the fact that he'd be rejected by Israel. By the people he came to save, that his mission was salvation. That he would be rejected and he would be crucified. All those things were foretold thousands of years before they happened. There's too many of them. If I, if I tried to talk about even half of them, I'd be here for the week. I might enjoy that, but you certainly wouldn't enjoy that, so I'm not going to do that. See how good I am to you? Right. What's the first of the messages we can gain from prophecy as a body of scripture. Not specific prophecies, but as a a body. It proves the existence of God. How does it do that? Scripture is stuffed full, hundreds of prophecies, predictions about future events that all came true. Is it possible to predict the future? Who can do that? Can men do that, even with supercomputers? No. Can anyone in the demonic realm do that? No. Not even Satan himself. The leader of them, who was known as the morning star, so great was his glory when he was created. He can't do that either. Only God himself can do that. Only someone who exists outside of time. Only the author of time can do that. And he's done it hundreds of times in our book, The Canon of Scripture. Which means... He proves conclusively, A, that he exists. B, that scripture is his own word. And three, that scripture can be trusted because it's his word, his inspired word, including trusted in the way it describes him and the picture of him that it paints, his nature and his character and his desires. Atheists will always say to you, I can't follow that religion, Christianity, because there is no objective proof that it is true. Wrong. There's your objective proof. Hundreds of times repeated. Predictions of the future, centuries, even thousands of years beforehand, that come true in great detail. Only God can do that. Scripture, prophecy in Scripture, reveals a lot about the nature and power of God. It reveals two things specifically. First is, he is unique. He tells us this himself in this verse, Isaiah 42. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them. He's saying he's not going to share his glory with anyone. Why? because there's no one else like him. And what's the evidence of this? Because he can predict the future and no one else can. That's the criterion he uses to declare that he is unique and the only true God. Not the false gods that we make for ourselves back then or now, because we still do it today. The second thing that he declares about his nature is his power. If he can predict the future, and he can, he must exist outside of time. There is no other way that he can work this, which means he exists in eternity, which means he is eternal, which means he created time. There is no other body of literature in Scripture that conveys God's power better than the creation account. But following close behind it is prophecy. Because while the creation account shows us God's power, that he can create all of the material realm, almost limitless space. It may well be limitless. We've never been able to see the edge of it. And billions of galaxies containing billions of stars and billions of planets, that's how grand it is on a macro scale. And at the micro level, the infinite complexity there. And he just spoke that into existence by the power of his word. That's the measure of his power. That's what the creation account conveys. Prophecy conveys the fact that he created time itself. Time constrains us. We're limited by it. It's our enemy, if you like. He isn't. He is the author of time. That's what prophecy conveys. So Another message you get from prophecy as a body of scripture is that he is in control. He doesn't exist in eternity with a cosmic telescope that allows him to see events in the future without being able to touch them, he brings those events to pass. Scripture prophecy shows us again and again that he brings those events to pass. He changes the times and the seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. Chapter 2 from Daniel. Prophecy shows us very clearly that he has the power to intervene in our events, in world events. He has the will to intervene in events and he has the... No, he doesn't. He does intervene in those events. That's the message we get clearly from Scripture. When we look at the world around us, in fact, you only have to look at the events in Parliament these last few weeks to, to see that things are completely out of control. Nobody can... Steer the ship. Nobody knows what's going on. Nobody can get us in the direction we should be going. The world is a giant mess. It's completely uncontrollable. We're polluting the planet. We're using up our finite resources. We've got increases in violence, wars, civil wars all over the place. We now possess through weapons the means to destroy ourselves and all life on this planet. Completely, a casual observer would say the world is going, as my mother would say, to hell in a handcart. But prophecy shows us that this isn't true. That While all that is going on, he is actually in control. And he has got the Holy Spirit at work in this world, restraining evil. And it will remain right until the very end when it is removed. Our future may be full of tribulation. Prophecy shows us that there's going to be horrendous times for the people who live in and through the last days. Lots of death and destruction, fear and misery. But ultimately, he's going to bring all that to an end. That's what prophecy shows us. The world isn't going to go on for millions of years. Some of us believe that the world has been around for millions of years. And in symmetrical thinking, it's easy to believe it's going to go on for millions of years. But it isn't. Because at a certain point in human history, he's going to come back and he's going to intervene and he's going to say, enough is enough. The end of human misrule. That's what prophecy tells us. Here's a definition, Webster's Dictionary, I think, of the word faithfulness, or faithful. Steadfast in affection, firm in adherence to promises, given with strong assurance. Critical thing here is the word, the, the phrase, adherence to promises, firm adherence. That means what? Put that in simple terms, keeps his promises. Every time God gives a prophecy about the future, usually about something that he is going to do, it is also a promise. He says, if you do this, I will do that. Or regardless of what you do, I'm going to do this. It's a promise. So what do we gain from seeing hundreds of prophecies in Scripture all fulfilled exactly as God promised? He keeps his promises. That's something else that prophecy, as a body of Scripture tells us. Scripture tells us the human heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17. It's a very um, objective uh, analysis of human nature and the human character in various places in Scripture, and this is a particularly pithy one. One of the things we're really good at, because of our deceitful hearts, is deceiving ourselves. And one of the things we're especially good at is deceiving ourselves about the consequences of our action. We like to think that there are no negative consequences of the things that we do. But that isn't true. And prophecy shows us clearly that that isn't true. Because in God's law, there is a cause and effect relationship. That in response to things that we do as human beings, he takes action There's a cause and effect relationship. And our wrongdoing is met with punishment, the cause and effect relationship. Prophecy shows us that very, very clearly. And in those prophecies, not only does he tell us about the negative consequences that will arise because of our actions, our wrongdoing, In mercy, he also shows us what we can do to avoid those negative consequences. All that is in prophecy. Did you realize that? The new covenant does not change this. Our powers of self-deception don't cease to be effective when we become Christians and when we realize that we are part of the new covenant. God's cause and effect relationship in his law doesn't cease to exist under the new covenant. It continues. The New Testament shows us this. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. All who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Don't be deceived, says from Galatians. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please the sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. You only have to look at end times scriptures to see that this cause and effect relationship is exactly, and it continues on. It's still working today, and it will continue right to the very end. Because in those end times prophecies, we see God pouring out his wrath upon the world, a sinful world, which is described as reaching its height of sinfulness. All those things are a consequence of their sin. Those punishments are meted out to them because of their sin. There's that cause and effect relationship. It doesn't change. What changes under the new covenant is that a way has been made for us to escape that punishment. Prophecy reveals God's will. Why does God always warn people before he punishes them in prophecy? In those conditional prophecies in the Old Testament, he says, if you don't stop what you are doing, I will do this. I will bring destruction on you, I will bring calamity on you. What does he always warn them? Because he's doing what any good parent would do. He is saying to the child, if you do that wrong, if you are disobedient, you will face these negative consequences. He's not doing that to be vindictive or spiteful. He's doing that, as a good parent would, to motivate us to do what is right, so that we might be spared the punishments. Because it is his first desire to save us from punishment, to save us from the consequences of our wrongdoing. That is his primary motivation. That is his will to save us. That is why he came into the world as a man. That is why he went to the cross. That is why he took unto himself God's wrath, so that that wrath might be turned aside from us, if we repent and turn to him and acknowledge what he has done. Prophecy reveals that that is his primary motivation and what his will is for us, all of us. He wants to be merciful. Enzyme's prophecies are a particular group of prophecies over which there is much contention. Um, I'm not going to go into detail. Um, as some of you know, I'm a council member for Prophetic Witness Movement International, um, which has its own particular view on interpretation of end times scriptures. I'm not going to um, be partisan in that way. What I'm going to focus on is something in end times prophecies that all parties agree on, that Jesus will come back again, the second coming. There's dispute over uh, what will happen before then, what the tribulation involves and how long that will take. There's some disputes about how long an interval there is between his arrival a second time and the final judgment of the living and the dead. But everyone agrees on his second coming. And what we know from prophetic scriptures is that when he returns, he will come back as judge. He'll come back as king who will rule and he will come back as judge. His arrival will be a spectacular, momentous world event. Everyone around the globe will know that he's arri- arriving. They will all see it, and Scripture tells us this in Matthew 25. This is Jesus Himself talking about the future, predicting that at the time, at that time, the, son of, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and great glory. He will return as judge. And he has a message for us in the church about what we should be doing when he comes back. Jesus has an expectation, which is shown us in prophecy, about what he wants to find us doing when he returns. And we are told he wants to find us going about his business. We are told he wants to find us living lives worthy of the kingdom on his return. And a number of his parables were on that theme the parable of the talents and the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. In that parable of the wise and foolish virgins, we, we hear that there are a group of virgins who go out to meet the bridegroom who they know is returning, but they don't know when. And half of that group are diligent and they ensure that they've got enough oil should he be delayed. The other half don't. And when the bridegroom returns, unexpectedly, at an hour they don't expect, Those who haven't been diligent don't have enough oil and their lamps are going out. So he takes those with him who were diligent and he takes them into the wedding banquet. And those who weren't diligent are left outside. That's metaphorical language. What is is Jesus saying by that? Well, there is some dispute over what he might be saying, but most people agree that what he's saying is it's possible to lose your reward You won't necessarily lose your salvation, but it's possible to lose your reward by not living a life that reflects the values of the kingdom, by continuing on in sin after you've been saved. That's what prophecy tells us also. Don't lose your reward. This prophecy that Jesus is returning, and that he has expectations about what he will find us doing when he arrives, is a powerful, motivating force. You could say, well, the only people who need to worry about that are the people who are actually here when he comes. But you don't know when he's going to come. And all through the centuries, people have lived in the expectation that he might come at any time. And that has been a motivator for them to keep their hands on the tiller of their faith and continue steering the ship, and not allow their faith to crash on the rocks. And that has been an enormous benefit to them, and it's been an enormous benefit to the lost, because they've been doing their jobs in the world. Prophecy motivates us to do that. A good parent will always warn a child ahead of time of the consequences of wrongdoing, God is exactly the same. Prophecy also shows us that there is a way in which we can escape that judgment. Look at this prophecy. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warn repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned from Jeremiah 18. As I've said already, this is God showing us through prophecy that he desires for us to escape that punishment. He desires for us to repent of our sins, which means that prophecy is actually a message of hope because it tells us about our uh, future judgment, the coming judgment, but it also shows us the way in which we can be spared from that punishment And it shows us also that it's God's will that we do, that we repent and save ourselves from his judgment. I hope what I've done is shown you that prophecies are not just historical curiosities. It's not just padding and filler, innocuous material. It's not just a passing historical interest, but it is a merciful, loving gift from a loving, merciful father that shows us his will for us, his heart's desire. That is the one message. If you take just one message from prophecy away today, take that one. Seek his forgiveness while it can still be found, for judgment is coming. I will leave you with that.